0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 315 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue on our trip around the world with the intrepid reporter, Nellie Bly. First though, I actually have a podcast highlight. You might want to check out this comedy called Wooden Overcoats. I just discovered it, although their first season ended in November of 2015. They've just done a Kickstarter campaign that was successful, it looks like, and so they will be having a second season. But if this doesn't pique your interest, what will? It's a sitcom about rival funeral directors. Essentially, it is a British radio comedy that we are lucky enough to have available in podcast form. And to me, it's got some of the silliness of Monty Python's Flying Circus, but without the -the over-the-top insanity. In a way, although they really aren't Equivalent uh, story types or anything. It makes me think of Dakota Ring Theater, which I've mentioned a few times. I don't care about their superhero drama, which is, or comedy, which is The Red Panda, but I absolutely love their noir detective comedy, which is Blackjack Justice. These people stay grounded just enough in reality to make you hang on while the silliness goes on around them. Let me read the description. On the overlooked Channel Island of Piffling, obstinate undertaker Rudyard Finn runs his family's failing funeral parlor, but when new and sexy undertaker Eric Chapman sets up shop across the square and becomes an immediate sensation, Rudyard realizes he'll have to take drastic steps to stay in business. With his frustrated sister Antigone, dog's body Georgie, and a mouse called Madeline, will Rudyard ever defeat his charming rival? So you see what I mean. It's just real enough, but it's also just silly enough. So definitely give it a try. There are, I believe, eight or ten episodes for the first season, maybe eight. Anyway, enough to thread through your summer days and make it a little extra delightful. Now, back to our own particular listening around the world in 72 days. I really loved meeting Jules Verne and his wife and hearing about the study totally cleared out of everything, hardly anything in the waste paper basket, none of the affectations that Nellie Bly had seen in other people's or other writers, I should say, studies. He just sits down and writes the story. I also loved that he said he had traveled around as much as he could on his personal yacht so he could get all the details right. And then once his health got bad, he was stuck having to depend on other sources. I I like that, knowing those techniques and thinking about him writing his books because they are heavily dependent on being as accurate as possible, scientifically, geographically, everything. So back in that day, That's exactly what you would have seen or heard or felt under those circumstances that he describes. You know, going to the center of the earth as we all do now and then. (laughs) Anyway, I really found that whole interlude charming. And like Nellie Bly, I was so glad that she suffered what she did in order to fit that visit in. I loved the encounter with the little Italian child and her father's pride and how she was able to go ahead and give her the coin, which she just intended as a gift and not as anything insulting. And I liked the element of adventure, the running for the boat after they gave the message. And all the books that the telegraph guy was having to look up all the codes in for how do you get this to America, it really put me in the place I suffered nothing but frustration over the whole British ship situation. That sounded like the worst voyage in the world. I would have been sick the entire time. But I'm not Nellie Bly. I'm going to find my freaking deck chair, okay? If I'm Nellie Bly. (laughs) It's just going to get better this time. So let's not talk about what we've seen already. Let's see what adventure waits for us next. Let's dive in.
1: Around the World in Seventy-Two Days by Nellie Bly Chapter 7 Two Beautiful Black Eyes It was in the afternoon when the Victoria anchored at Port Said. We were all on deck, eagerly watching for the first sight of land, and though that sight showed us a wide sandy beach and some uninteresting two-storied white houses with arcade fronts, Still, it did not lessen our desire to go ashore. I suppose that would have been the result under the circumstances had Port Said been the most desolate place on earth. I know everybody was experiencing a slight weariness, though we should all have stoutly denied such reflection on our constant companions, and gladly welcomed the change of a few hours on shore, where at least we might see new faces. A more urgent reason still for our going to land— was the fact that this was a coaling port for the Victoria, and I never knew of anything that would make one more quickly feel that there are things in life much worse than death, if I may use the expression, than to have to stay on board a ship during the coaling operation. Before the boat anchored, the men armed themselves with canes to keep off the beggars, they said, and the women carried parasols for the same purpose. I had neither stick nor umbrella with me, and refused all offers to accept one for this occasion, having an idea, probably a wrong one, that a stick beats more ugliness into a person than it ever beats out. Hardly had the anchor dropped, than the ship was surrounded with a fleet of small boats, steered by half-clad Arabs, fighting, grabbing, pulling, yelling in their mad haste to be first. I never in my life saw such an exhibition of hungry greed for the few pence they expected to earn by taking passengers ashore. Some boatmen actually pulled others out of their boats into the water in their frantic endeavours to steal each other's places. When the ladder was lowered, numbers of them caught it and clung to it as if it meant life or death to them, and here they clung until the captain was compelled to order some sailors to beat the Arabs off, which they did with long poles, before the passengers dared venture forth, this dreadful exhibition made me feel that probably there was some justification in arming oneself with a club. Our party were the first to go down the ladder to the boats. It had been our desire and intention to go ashore together, but when we stepped into the first boat, some were caught by rival boatmen and literally dragged across to other boats. The men in the party used their sticks quite vigorously, all to no avail and although I thought the conduct of the Arabs justified this harsh course of treatment, still I felt sorry to see it administered so freely and lavishly to those black, half-cloud wretches, and marveled at their stubborn persistence even while cringing under the blows. Having our party divided, there was nothing to do under the circumstances but to land and reunite on shore, so we ordered the Arabs to pull away. Midway between the Victoria and the shore, the boatmen stopped, And demanded their money in very plain and forcible English. We were completely at their mercy, as they would not land us either way until we paid what they asked. One of the Arabs told me that they had many years' experience in dealing with the English and their sticks, and had learned by bitter lessons that if they landed an Englishman before he paid, they would receive a stinging blow for their labor. Walking up the beach, sinking ankle deep in the sand at every step, "'we came to the main street. "'Almost instantly we were surrounded by Arab boys "'who besought us to take a ride on the burros "'that stood patiently beside them. "'There were burros of all colours, sizes, and shapes, "'and the boys would cry out most beseechingly, "'Here's Gladstone! Take a ride! "'See Gladstone with two beautiful black eyes!' "'This they would cry in such soft, plaintive way "'that one felt that the two beautiful black eyes "'made the animals irresistible.' If one happened to be of a different political belief, and objected to riding the Gladstone hobby, as it were, a choice could be made of almost any other well-known, if not popular name. There were Mrs. Maybricks, Mary Andersons, Lily Langtrees, and all the prominent men of the time. I knew all about Burroughs, having lived for some time in Mexico, but they proved to be quite a novelty to many of the passengers, almost all of whom were anxious to take a ride before returning to the boat." so as many as could find animals to ride mounted and went flying through that quaint sleeping town yelling with laughter bouncing like rubber balls on their saddles while half-naked arab boys goaded the burros on by short urgent hisses and by prodding them from behind with a sharp stick after seeing about fifty of our passengers started off in this happy manner a small number of us went to a gambling house and in a short time were deep in the sport of placing our English gold on colors and numbers, and waiting anxiously for the wheel to go round to see the money at last swept in by the man at the table. I do not think that any one of us knew anything about the game, but we recklessly put our money on the table, and laughed to see it taken in by the man who gave the turn to the wheel. There was another attraction in this place which helped to win a number of young men from that very expensive table. It was an orchestra composed of young women, some of whom were quite pleasing in both looks and manners. The longer we remained at this gambling-house, the less money we had to spend in the shops. I went ashore with the determination not to buy anything, as I was very anxious not to increase my baggage. I withstood the tempting laces which were offered at wonderfully low prices, the quaint Egyptian curios, and managed to content myself by buying a sun-hat, as everybody else did, and a peggaree to wind about it, as is customary in the East. Having bought a hat and seen all I cared to of the shops, I went strolling about with some friends, feasting my eyes on what were to me peculiarities of a peculiar people. I saw old houses with carved wood fronts that would have been worth a fortune in America, occupied by tenants that were unmistakably poor. The natives were apparently so accustomed to strangers that we attracted very little, if any, attention, Except from those who hoped to gain something from our visit, unmolested we went about finding no occasion to use sticks on the natives. We saw a great number of beggars who, true to their trade, wind forth with outstretched hands their plaintive appeals. But they were not so intrusive or bothersome that they necessitated our giving them the cane instead of alms. The majority of these beggars presented such repulsive forms of misery that, in place of appealing to my sympathetic nature, as is generally the case. "'they had a hardening effect on me. "'They seemed to thrust their deformities in our faces "'in order to compel us to give money "'to buy their absence from our sight. "'While standing looking after a train of camels "'that had just come in loaded with firewood, "'I saw some Egyptian women. "'They were small in stature and shapelessly clad in black. "'Over their faces, beginning just below the eyes, "'they wore black veils that fell almost to their knees.' As if fearing that veil alone would not destroy all semblance of features, they wear a thing that spans the face between the hair and the veil down the line of their noses. In some cases this appears to be of gold, and in others it is composed of some black material. One Egyptian woman carried a little naked baby with her. She held it on her hips, its little black legs clinging to her waist much after the fashion of a boy climbing a pole. Down at the beach we came upon a group of naked men clustered about an alligator that they had caught. It was securely fastened in some knotted rope, the end of which was held by some half-dozen blackfellows. The public water-carriers, with well-filled goatskins flung across their backs, we met making their way to the town for the last trip that day. Darkness came on us very suddenly, and sent us rushing off for our ship— This time we found the boatmen would not permit us to even enter their boats until we paid them to take us across to the Victoria. Their price now was just double what they had charged to bring us to land. We protested, but they said it was the law to double the price after sunset. They were just finishing the coaling when we reached the ship. But the sight we caught of the coal barges, lighted by some sputtering dripping stuff, held in iron cages on the end of long poles, that showed the hurrying naked people rushing with sacks of coal up a steep gangplank between the barges and the ship, was one long to be remembered. Nor were they working quietly. Judging from the noise, every one of them was yelling something that pleased his own fancy and humor." The next morning I got up earlier than usual, so anxious was I to see the famous Suez Canal. Rushing up on deck, I saw we were passing through what looked like an enormous ditch, enclosed on either side with high sand-banks. We seemed to be hardly moving, which made us feel the heat very intensely. They tell me that, according to law, a ship must not travel through the canal at a speed exceeding five knots an hour, because the rapid passage of the ship would make a strong current that would wash in the sandbanks, One gentleman, who had travelled all his life, helped us to pass some of the tedious stifling hours in the canal by telling us the history of it. It was begun in 1859, and took ten years to build. The work is estimated to have cost nearly 18,250,000 pounds, "'although the poor blacks that were employed to do the labor "'commanded the lowest possible wages. "'It is claimed that the lives of 100,000 laborers "'were sacrificed in the building of this canal, "'which is only 100 English miles, "'88 geographical miles, five in length. "'When first completed, "'the width of the surface of the canal was 325 feet, "'but the constant washing in of the banks "'has reduced it to 195 feet.' The bottom is said to be seventy-two feet wide, and the depth is but twenty-six feet. The trip through the canal can be made in from twenty to twenty-four hours. About noon of our first day in the canal, we anchored in the bay, fronting Ismailia. Here passengers were taken on, which gave us time to see the Khedive's palace, which is built a little way back from the beach in the heart of a beautiful green forest. Continuing the journey through the canal, we saw little of interest. The signal stations were the only green spots that met the eye, but they were proof of what could be done, even in this sandy desert, by the expenditure of time and energy. The one thing that enlivened this trip was the appearance of naked Arabs, who would occasionally run along the banks of the canal, crying in pitiful tones, Bakshish! This, we understood, meant money, "'which many of the kind-hearted passengers would throw to them, "'but the beggars never seemed to find it, "'and would keep on after us, "'still crying, Bakshish, until they were exhausted. "'We passed several ships in the canal. "'Generally the passengers would call to the passengers on the other ships, "'but the conversation was confined mainly to inquiries "'as to what kind of voyage had been theirs. "'We saw at one place in the canal "'a lot of Arabs, both men and women, at work.' Among them were a number of camels that were employed in carrying stone, with which the laborers were endeavoring to strengthen the banks. In the night the boat hung an electric light from the front, and by the aid of this light, moving it from side to side, were able to continue on their way. Before the introduction of the electric headlights for this purpose, the vessels were always compelled to tie up in the canal overnight, because of the great danger of running into the sand-banks." In addition to making the trip longer, this stoppage added greatly to the discomfort of the passengers, who found that even the slow motion of the boat helped in a measure to lessen the stifling heat that seemed to come from out of the sand-banks during the night as well as when the blazing sun was in the cloudless sky. We saw, when near the end of the canal, several Arab encampments. They were both picturesque and interesting. First we could notice a small dull red fire, and between that fire and us we could see the outlines of people and resting camels. At one encampment we heard music, but at the others we saw people either working over the fire, as if preparing their evening meal, or in sitting positions, crouching about it in company with their camels. Shortly after this we dropped anchor in the bay of Suez. Hardly had we done so when the ship was surrounded by a number of small sailboats that, in the semi-darkness, with their white sails before the breeze, reminded me of moths flocking to a light, both from their white-winged-like appearance, and the rapid way in which numbers of them floated down on us. These sailboats were filled with men with native fruits, photographs, and odd shells to sell. They all came on board, and among them were a number of jugglers. The passengers took very little interest in the vendors, but all had a desire to see what was to be offered by the jugglers. There was one among them, a black man, who wore little else than a sash, a turban and a baggy pocket, in the lining of which he carried two lizards and a small rabbit. He was very anxious to show us his tricks and to get the money for them. He refused, however, to do anything with the rabbit and lizards until after he had shown us what he could do with a handkerchief and some bangles that he brought along for this purpose. He selected me from among the crowd to hold the handkerchief, which he had first shaken as if to show that it contained nothing. He then showed us a small brass bangle, and pretended to put the bangle in the handkerchief. He then placed the handkerchief in my hand, telling me to hold it tightly. I did so, feeling the presence of the bangle very plainly. He blew on it, and jerking the handkerchief loose from my grasp, shook it. Much to the amazement of the crowd, the bangle was gone. Some of the passengers in the meantime stole the juggler's rabbit, and one of the lizards had quietly taken itself off to some secluded spot— He was very much concerned about the loss of them, and refused to perform any more tricks until they were restored to his keeping. At last one young man took the rabbit from his pocket and returned it to the juggler, much to his gratification. The lizard was not to be found, and as it was time for the ship to sail, the juggler was forced to return to his boat. After he had gone, several people came to know if I had any idea how the trick with the handkerchief had been done. I explained to them that it was an old and very uninteresting trick, that the man had one bangle sewn in the handkerchief, and the other bangle, which he showed to the people, he slipped quietly out of sight. Of course, the one who held the handkerchief held the bangle, but when the juggler would jerk the handkerchief from the hand and shake it in full view of the audience, the bangle being sewn to the handkerchief would naturally not fall to the floor and as he carefully kept the side to which the bangle was attached turned towards himself, he successfully duped his audience into thinking that by his magic he had made the bangle disappear. One of the men who listened to this explanation became very indignant, and wanted to know if I knew positively how this trick had been done, and why I had not exposed the man. I merely explained that I wanted to see the juggler get his money, much to the disgust of the Englishman. Where we were anchored at Suez some claim is the historic place where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Some people who bother themselves greatly about facts, figures, and ancient history bought views, which showed that at certain stages of the tide, people even in this day can wade around there without any risk of life or comfort. The next morning, when we arose, we were out of sight of land and well out on the Red Sea. The weather now was very hot but still some of the passengers did their best to make things lively on board. One evening a number of young men gave a minstrel show. They displayed both energy and perseverance in preparing for it, as well as in the execution of it. One end of the deck was set aside for the show. A stage was put up, and the whole corner was enclosed by awnings, and the customary green curtain hung in place during service as drop curtain between acts, as well as appearing before and after the performance. The young men filled their different roles in a very commendable manner, but as the night was so dreadfully warm, the passengers feeling the heat more than usual, owing to the deck being enclosed by awnings, it was difficult to awake any enthusiasm on the part of the audience. We had an intermission, when all retired to the dining-room for punch and biscuits, and I know that no one appreciated the refreshments more than the actors who joined us, their blackened faces streaked with perspiration." Towards the last, the passengers could find very little to do that proved interesting, or in any way aided them to forget the heat. A few of those who could sing, or imagined they could, were persuaded to exercise their vocal organs for the benefit of those who could sing and would not, and those who realized they had no voice and knew enough to remain quiet. At other times, many of us went to the deck reserved for the second-class passengers, and enjoyed the concerts given by them when there were no chairs for us on this deck, we would sit on the floor, and we all acknowledged that the first-class passengers could not furnish music that was any better. The days were spent mainly on deck, lounging about in easy chairs. I found that no one enjoyed as much comfort as I did. I had changed my heavy waist for my silk bodice, and I felt cool and comfortable and lazily happy. When dinner hour approached, We could see a few rush off to dress for dinner, and later they would appear in full dress, low bodice and long train, much to the amusement of that class of passengers who maintained that it was decidedly not the thing to appear in full dress on an ocean steamer. The evening dress, made of white linen in which the young men in the East generally made their appearance at dinner, impressed me as being not only comfortable and appropriate, but decidedly becoming and elegant. It is very seldom that men do not get more enjoyment out of life than women under like circumstances. Between cricket, to which they were passionately attached, and quats and the smoking-room, which was the scene of many exciting games for large stakes, and later on an hour or so spent in a dark corner of the deck pleasing, and being pleased by some congenial companion of the opposite sex, the enforced rest was quite an agreeable one to the men. We were all very much interested and concerned about a small bird that had traveled with us from Suez, sometimes flying along a little way and then resting on the rigging of the ship. It was a pretty bird with a slender gray tail and a silver breast and a black ring about its throat, its back being a modest, drabbish brown. At first it was easily frightened, but after a while it became very tame, and it would light on the deck among the passengers, picking up the crumbs they threw to it. Beside the bird, as a topic of interest, we had the lizard, which was left behind by the juggler. It was found in a quiet corner of the deck by the quartermaster the morning following our stop at Suez. A sympathizing young man took charge of it, and endeavored to feed it, but after living in sullen quietness for a few days, it ceased to breathe, and its death was solemnly announced to the passengers. The Victoria is said to be the finest boat on the P&O line, still it could not be more unsuited for the trip. It is very badly planned, being built so that a great number of cabins inside are absolutely cut off from light and air. It is a compliment to call them cabins, as they are really nothing more than small, dark, disagreeable, and unventilated boxes." The passengers are charged all the same rate of fare, and if they are consigned to one of these undesirable boxes there is no redress. They must simply bow before the dictates of this company, who trade on the fact of there being an old established line, and a very desirable one in many respects, and passengers are treated, I judge only by what I saw and heard, as if they should consider that a favor had been conferred upon them when they were permitted to pay for tickets to travel on that line." The prices to ports that are touched at by rival steamship lines are rather reasonable, while to ports where they have the monopoly they charge exorbitant rates. I have stated that the conduct of the officers and servants and the quality of the food left much to be desired by the travellers. The nights were so warm while on the Red Sea that the men left their cabins and spent their nights on deck. It is usually customary for the women to sleep on deck, one side of which at such times is reserved exclusively for them. During this trip none of the women had the courage to set the example, so the men had the decks to themselves. Sleeping down below was all the more reason why women arising early would go out on the decks before the sun began to boil, in search of a refreshing spot where they could get a breath of cool air. At this hour the men were usually to be seen promenading about in their pyjamas, But I heard no objections raised until, much to the dismay of the women, the captain announced that the decks belonged to the men until after eight o'clock in the morning, and that the women were expected to remain below until after that hour. Just before we came to Aden, we passed in the sea a number of high brown mountains. They are known as the Twelve Apostles. Shortly after this we came in sight of Aden. It looked to us like a large, bare mountain of wonderful height— but even by the aid of glasses we were unable to tell that it was inhabited. Shortly after eleven o'clock in the morning, we anchored in the bay. Our boat was soon surrounded by a number of small boats, which brought to us men who had things to sell, and the wonderful divers of the east. The passengers had been warned by the officers on board not to go ashore at Aden, because of the intense heat. So the women spent their time bargaining with the Jews who came to the ship to sell ostrich feathers and feather boas. The men helped them to close with the sellers always to the sellers advantage much as they might congratulate themselves to the contrary I in company with a few of the more reckless ones decided to brave the heat and go ashore and see what Auden had to offer Chapter 8 Auden to Colombo Hiring a large boat I went ashore with a half dozen acquaintances who felt they could risk the sun The four oarsmen were black fellows, thin of limb, but possessed of much strength and tireless good humor. They have, as have all the inhabitants of Aden, the finest white teeth of any mortals. This may be due to the care they take of them, and the manner of that care. From some place, I am unable to state where, as I fail to see one living thing growing at Aden, they get tree branches of a soft, fibrous wood, which they cut into pieces three and four inches in length. With one end of this stick, scraped free of the bark, they rub and polish their teeth until they are perfect in their whiteness. The wood wears into a soft pulp, but as one can buy a dozen sticks for a penny, one can well afford to throw the stick away after once using, although, if necessary, a stick can be used many times. I bought several sticks and found them the most efficient as well as pleasant toothbrush I had ever tried. I felt to regret that some enterprising firm had not thought of importing this useful bit of timber to replace the tooth-destroying brush used in America. The man in charge of the boat that carried us to land was a small black fellow with the thinnest legs I ever saw. Somehow they reminded me of smoked herrings. They were so black, flat, and dried-looking. He was very gay, notwithstanding his lack of weight. Around his neck and over his bare breast were twined strings of beads, "'black and gold and silver. "'Around his waist was a highly-coloured sash, "'and on his arms and ankles were heavy bracelets, "'while his fingers and toes seemed to be trying to outdo one another "'in the way of rings. "'He spoke English quite well, "'and to my rather impertinent question "'as to what number constituted his family, "'he told me that he had three wives and eleven children, "'which number,' he added piously, "'by the grace of the power of his faith, "'he hoped to increase.' his hair was yellow, which, added to his very light dress of jewellery and sash, gave him rather a strange look. The bright yellow hair and the black skin forming a contrast which was more startling than the black eyes and yellow hair that flashed upon the astonished vision of the American public some years ago, but has become since an old and tiresome sight. Some of the boatmen had their black wool pasted down and hidden under a coating of lime, I was very curious about it, until the first man explained that they were merely bleaching their hair, that it was always done by covering the head with lime, which, being allowed to remain on for several days, exposed to the hot sun and the water, bleached the hair yellow or red at the expiration of that time. This bleaching craze, he also informed me, was confined to the men of Aden. So far none of the women had tried to enhance their black beauty in that way, but it was considered very smart among the men." While we were talking, our men were vigorously pulling to the tune of a rousing song, one line of which was sung by one man, the others joining in the refrain at the end. Their voices were not unpleasant, and the air had a monotonous rhythm that was very fascinating. We landed at a well-built pier and walked up the finely cut white stone steps from the boat to the land. Instantly we were surrounded by half-clad black people, all of whom, after the manner of hack drivers at railway stations, were clamoring for our favor. They were not all drivers, however. Mingling with the drivers were merchants with jewelry, ostrich plumes and boas to sell, runners for hotels, beggars, cripples, and guides. This conglomeration besought us to listen to every individual one of them until a native policeman, in the queen's uniform, came forward and pushed the black fellows back with his hands, sometimes hastening their retreat with his boot. A large board occupied a prominent position on the pier. On it was marked the prices that should be paid drivers, boatmen, and like people. It was, indeed, a praiseworthy thoughtfulness that caused the erection of that board, for it prevented tourists being robbed. I looked at it, and thought that even in that land there was more precaution taken to protect helpless and ignorant strangers than in New York City, where the usual custom of night hackmen is to demand exorbitant prices, and, if they are not forthcoming, to pull off their coats and fight for it. Perched on the side of this bleak bare mountain is a majestic white building, reached by a fine road cut in the stone that forms the mountain. It is a club-house, erected for the benefit of the English soldiers who are stationed on this barren spot. In the harbour lay an English man-of-war, and near a point where the land was most level, numbers of white tents were pitched for soldiers. From the highest peak of the Black Rocky Mountain, probably seventeen hundred feet above sea-level, floated the English flag— As I travelled on, and realised more than ever before how the English have stolen almost all, if not all, desirable seaports, I felt an increased respect for the level-headedness of the English government, and I ceased to marvel at the pride with which Englishmen view their flag floating in so many different climes, and over so many different nationalities. Near the pier were shops run by Parsi's. A hotel, post-office, and telegraph office are located in the same place. The town of Aden is five miles distant. We hired a carriage and started at a good pace on a wide, smooth road that took us along the beach for a way, passing low rows of houses, where we saw many miserable, dirty-looking natives, past a large graveyard, liberally filled, which looked like the rest of that stony point, bleak, black, and bare, the graves often being shaped by cobblestones. The roads at Aden are a marvel of beauty. They are wide and as smooth as hardwood, and as they twist and wind in pleasing curves up the mountain, they are made secure by a high, smooth wall against mishap. Otherwise, their steepness might result in giving tourists a serious roll down a rough mountain-side. Just before we began to ascend, we saw a black man at his devotions. He was kneeling in the centre of a little square formed by rocks. His face was turned heavenward, and he was oblivious to all except the power before which he was laying bare his inmost soul, with a fervour and devotion that commanded respect, even from those who thought of him as a heathen. I inferred that he was a sun-worshipper from the way in which he constantly had his face turned upward, except when he bent forward to kiss the ground on which he knelt. On the road we saw black people of many different tribes. A number of women I noticed, who walked proudly along, their brown, bare feet stepping lightly on the smooth road. They had long purple-black hair, which was always adorned with a long, stiff feather, dyed of a brilliant red green, purple, and like striking shades. They wore no other ornament than the colored feather, which lent them an air of pride when seen beside the much bejeweled people of that quaint town. Many of the women, who seemed very poor indeed, were lavishly dressed in jewelry. They did not wear much else, it is true, but in a place as hot as Aden, jewelry must be as much as anyone would care to wear. To me the sight of these perfect bronze-like women with a graceful drapery of thin silk wound about the waist, falling to the knees, and a corner taken up and back and brought across the bust, was most bewitching. On their bare, perfectly molded arms were heavy bracelets, around the wrist and muscle, most times joined by chains. Bracelets were also worn about the ankles, and their fingers and toes were laden with rings. Sometimes large rings were suspended from the nose, and the ears were almost always outlined with hoop rings that reached from the inmost edge of the lobe to the top of the ear joining the head." So closely were these rings placed that at a distance the ear had the appearance of being rimmed in gold. A more pleasing style of nose ornament was a large gold ornament set in the nostril and fastened there as screw-rings fasten in the ear. Still, if that nose ornamentation was more pleasing than the other, the ear adornment that accompanied it was disgusting. The lobe of the ear was split from the ear, and pulled down to such length that it usually rested on the shoulder." The enormous loop of flesh was partially filled with large gold knobs. At the top of the hill we came to a beautiful, majestic stone double gate, the entrance to the English fort, and also spanning the road that leads to the town. Sentinels were pacing to and fro, but we drove past them without stopping or being stopped, through a strange narrow cut in the mountain, that towered at the sides a hundred feet above the road-bed. Both these narrow, perpendicular sides are strongly fortified it needs but one glance at aden which is itself a natural fort to strengthen the assertion that aden is the strongest gate to india the moment we emerged from the cut which besides being so narrow that two carriages pass with great difficulty is made on a dangerous steep grade we got a view of the white town of aden nestling in the very heart of what seems to be an extinct volcano we were driven rapidly down the road catching glimpses of gaudily attired mounted policemen water-carriers from the bay, with their well-filled goatskins flung across their backs, camels loaded with cut stone, and black people of every description. When we drove into the town, which is composed of low adobe houses, our carriage was surrounded with beggars. We got out and walked through an unpaved street, looking at the dirty, uninviting shops and the dirty, uninviting people in and about them. Very often we were urged to buy, but more frequently the natives stared at us with quiet curiosity. In the heart of the town we found the camel market, but beyond a number of camels standing, lying, and kneeling about, the sight was nothing extraordinary. Nearby was a goat market, but business seemed dull in both places. Without buying anything, we started to return to the ship. Little naked children ran after us for miles, touching their foreheads humbly and crying for money. They all knew enough English to be able to ask us for charity." when we reached the pier, we found our driver had forgotten all the English he knew when we started out. He wanted one price for the carriage, and we wanted to pay another. It resulted in our appealing to a native policeman, who took the right change from us, handed it to the driver, and gave him, in addition, a lusty kick for his dishonesty. Our limited time prevented our going to see the water-tanks, which are some miles distant from Aden. When we returned to the ship we found Jews there, selling ostrich eggs and plumes, shells, fruit, spears of swordfish, and such things. In the water, on one side of the boat, were numbers of men, Somali boys, they called them, who were giving an exhibition of wonderful diving and swimming. They would actually sit in the water, looking like bronze statues, as the sun rested on their wet black skin. They sat in a row, and turning their faces up towards the deck, would yell methodically, one after the other, down the entire line, ho, yo, ho! It sounded very like a chorus of bullfrogs, and was very amusing. After finishing the strange music, they would give us a duet, half crying persuasively, in a sing-song style, have a dive, have a dive, have a dive. The other half, meanwhile, would put their hands before their widely opened mouths, yelling through their rapidly moving fingers with such energy that we gladly threw over silver to see them dive in and stop the din." The moment the silver flashed over the water, all the bronze figures would disappear like flying fish, and looking down, we would see a few ripples on the surface of the blue water, nothing more. After a time that seemed dangerously long to us, they would bob up through the water again. We could see them coming before they finally appeared on the surface, and one among the number would have the silver between his teeth, which would be most liberally displayed in a broad smile of satisfaction. Some of these divers were children, not more than eight years old and they ranged from that up to any age. Many of them had had their hair bleached. As they were completely naked, excepting a small cloth twisted about the loins, they found it necessary to make a purse out of their cheeks, which they did with as much ease as a cow stows away grass to chew at her leisure. "'I have often envied a cow this splendid gift,' "'One wastes so much time eating, especially when travelling, "'and I could not help picturing the comfort it would be sometimes "'to dispose of our food wholesale and consume it at our leisure afterwards. "'I am certain there would be fewer dyspeptics then.' "'No animal, water born and bred, could frisk more gracefully in the water "'than do these Somali boys. "'They swim about, using the legs alone or the arms alone, "'on their backs or sides, and, in most cases, with their faces under water. "'They never get out of the way of a boat.' They merely sink and come up in the same spot when the boat passes. The bay at Aden is filled with sharks, but they never touch these black men, so they tell me. And the safety with which they spend their lives in the water proves the truth of the assertion. They claim that a shark will not attack a black man, and after I caught the odor of the grease with which these men anoint their bodies, I did not blame the sharks. After a seven-hour stay at Aden, we left for Colombo, being followed a long ways out from the land by the divers. "'One little boy went out with us on the ship, "'and when he left us he merely took a plunge "'from the upper deck into the sea "'and went happily back towards Aden on his side, "'waving a farewell to us with his free hand. "'The passengers endeavored to make the time pass "'pleasantly between Aden and Colombo. "'The young women had some tableaux vivants one evening, "'and they were really very fine. "'In one they wished to represent the different countries. "'They asked me to represent America, but I refused.' and then they asked me to tell them what the American flag looked like. They wanted to represent one as nearly as possible, and to rise it to drape the young woman who was to represent America. Another evening we had a lantern-slide exhibition that was very enjoyable. The loyalty of the English to their queen on all occasions and at all times had won my admiration though born and bred a staunch American, with the belief that a man is what he makes of himself, not what he was born, still I could not help admiring the undying respect the English have for their royal family. During the lantern-slide exhibition, the Queen's picture was thrown on the white sheet, and evoked warmer applause than anything else that evening. We never had an evening's amusement that did not end by everybody rising to their feet and singing God Save the Queen. I could not help but think how devoted that woman— for she is only a woman, after all, should be to the interests of such faithful subjects. With that thought came to me a shamed feeling that there I was, a free-born American girl, the native of the grandest country on earth, forced to be silent because I could not in honesty speak proudly of the rulers of my land, unless I went back to those two kings of manhood, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln."